Hello and welcome back to Finding Your Niche. In today's episode, I shared a conversation with Mark Lewis, a multi-company CMO that was most recently at Trace Agaves, a tequila company based out of California. Mark is an incredibly experienced marketer, having overseen analytics and marketing for brands such as Mitsubishi Motors, Blue Shield of California, NBA 2K, Premier Protein, and several others. Today's episode, we shared a conversation about what truly goes into a company's marketing strategy and what can be measured to ensure that it's successful. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy. Awesome. So I'm Mark Lewis. Um, most recently, I've been the CMO of Trace Agaves, uh, which is a tequila and margarita mix brand. Uh, I'm originally from the UK, but moved to the US 25 years ago. Uh, and my background is really in brand strategy and communication strategy. I spent a very long okay. time working for a lot of different ad agencies in New York and San Francisco, helping brands, you know, kind of define their brand strategy and their approach to the market, working with creative teams to understand their audience, to understand the audience and develop springboards into the right way to communicate with them, to create more effective uh, communication. Um, took a segue then into digital product leadership and led a product innovation team at uh, Slalom Consulting, um, and then kind of went into the client-side world at a data analysis consultancy called uh, Clarity Insights, and then after a brief trip back to the agency world, uh, led the team here at Trace Garvitz. Incredible. So I, I do have a, a plethora of questions I want to ask you about well, branding, but I do want to start with um, your transition from the UK to the United States. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to make you disclose what your age is, but you said you moved here 25 years ago or so. Um, so I'd love to hear like why, why you inevitably came to the United States and, and what your journey's been like since you got here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was actually, I came to the States for very personal reasons. Um, so actually, so it's a funny thing. So I'm, I'm British, but I'm also American because my mother's originally from New York. So I was used to coming to the States as a kid to see my family. Uh, you know, every couple of years. So, it, you know, and I grew up watching, you know, Saturday morning cartoons, you know, admittedly not all the time, but, you know, a lot of the shows and people of my, the people of my age know, I, I also know. Um, and it happened that um, I, my first job out of college was working for Chase uh, as a foreign exchange student. So nothing to do with marketing. Interesting. And they sent me to New York for training, for training and I met someone. And then, uh, so we were doing a long distance relationship and uh, she tried to move to the UK, but immigration wouldn't let her. I wasn't liking my job. So we decided I would move to the States and I, you know, I, I wanted to change careers back into marketing. And so the best thing to do was to go back to school to do that. So I came actually uh, in 95, having worked a couple of years out of college to go to NYU to get my MBA. Yeah. So, that, so what, I, was the, what was the initial driver into banking out of curiosity? You no, know, I did it. I, I was really fascinated by economics and uh, I got my undergraduate degree in economics. Um, and it was kind of a challenge when I graduated because, you know, there weren't as many economics consultancies back then as there were now, as there are now maybe. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. I didn't want to go into the civil service because my father had been kind of in a sort of, he'd worked for the European Union and I just didn't feel that that was the right thing for me. So um i but i wanted to use my degree so i you know kind of almost fell into banking just frankly needing a job after college and uh i just fair enough fair enough you know the thing is that when you're a trader you are not 
you know, it's very much about the, the rhythm of the market, um, especially a currency trader. Mm-hmm. You're not thinking about long-term sort of macroeconomic things, you know, as, you know, the, the direction of interest mm-hmm. rate, the direction of unemployment. You're more worried about the, you know, hourly or daily bounces up and down in the currency. And those are caused by supply, demand, sentiment, news, market craziness. So it just wasn't very strategic um, in that sense. So I really kind of, um, you know, that, that's what kind of initially attracted me to it, but then at the same time, it pushed me away from it. Yeah. So then what, what drove, you, drove you into marketing then? Uh, and by the way, the, the trading that you're doing, a lot of that's probably just done by algorithms now. Uh, yeah, well, there is a lot of algorithm trading. Uh, yeah. There definitely is. I think it's easier. There's this, and there's a lot of kind of things that pick up that sentiment and movement. Um, I still think there's probably room for yep. people trading, but yeah, there's, I'm sure there is algorithm. I think so too. Yeah. yeah. But um, yeah. why marketing? You know, it's really funny. I always, you know, my mother actually, funnily enough, was a journalist and an editor, and she worked with a really big name in marketing, a guy called Andrew Ehrenberg. Um, who mm-hmm. is kind of the kind of founder of the, you know, things like the double jeopardy rule. And a lot of, you know, if you've ever read Byron Sharp's work on how brands grow, that's based on Aaron Berg's work. So it was very funny that I had this weird relationship with him and I used to read his papers and stuff. And I loved ads. I really kind of thought what I was going to like, oh, it'd be a cool job to make up ads. Um, so I took mm-hmm. a marketing course in college. I really liked it. Um, actually, while I was in college, I really wanted to be in the music business. Uh, I really Interesting. Wanted to be a music musician. So I always, you know, when I moved to New York, I thought, oh, I'd like to be in music marketing because it's cool, it's music, and it's marketing, it's creative. Uh, and I sort of found out that the music industry, I did a couple of internships at like RCA, Polygram, and I was like, yeah, it's not that interesting, and it's not that, and the people who run it are kind of not really doing marketing in the way that I think you should be doing marketing. So I kind of pivoted away from that, uh, but the desire to be in a creative marketing kind of role uh, kind of was was innate. It was just it was that outlet to something creative, I think, that I was really looking for. Yeah, and knowing the context on that, how would you define marketing? I honestly, I don't know how I would define it. So this might be a tough question, but I'd love to hear your response to it. I mean, marketing is the way that you uh, you create a product and bring it to market in such a way that it drives, I would say, consumer success that leads to business success, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's Mm -hmm. a really important definition because I think a lot of people now, especially in the tech world, have disassociated products from marketing. But in the classic kind of CPG world, right, Sure, you might have food scientists or other scientists who invent a product, but you need a marketer to kind of understand who is this product for? What what is this technology for? What should we do with it? How do we position it? Like, you know, what benefits are there? How do we shape the experience? Because we need to understand who the audience is, who the consumer is at its core. So it's, it's about, you know, getting, uh, you know, in a way you could look at it as business driven by consumer centricity, mm-hmm. right? Because you mm-hmm. do have to put the consumer at the center of what you're doing. That 100%. doesn't mean to say you need to parrot what the consumer says or does. You, you have to mm-hmm. 
lead the consumer, right? There is some, you know, like there's the famous Henry Ford saying, if I'd asked the consumer what they wanted, they would have asked for a faster horse, right? So it's about understanding the unmet needs of the consumer and figuring out how to satisfy those and bring it to market in a compelling way. And in, in general, throughout your career, what are some ways that, that you've done that to A, lead the consumer, but B, just understand in general what they need and then shape you know, the product around it? Yeah, no, I think that, um, I mean, it's, it's unfortunately um, not that often that I've been involved. I mean, I've done a fair bit of innovation work, um, yeah. whether that is new flavors for a, you know, brand salad dressing or new innovations for Brita or, you know, a, a creating a dot-com startup like ecomplaints.com, which I worked on. So, um, but I think fundamentally it's about listening to the consumer or watching the consumer at several levels. One is I think just watching, you know, kind of everyday behavior and you yourself are a consumer. So I think looking at your behavior or looking at your frustrations is kind of the, a big place to start you know if you ever find yourself saying i wish there was a way to do this then that's a gap or just so looking for those gaps or tensions or problems or looking where people are having to do workarounds is a very important way to do that and so you can observe it in everyday life right you can observe it like if someone's buying two of a, a product you know two products to do one thing immediately there's an opportunity, right? So um, I think the other thing is like, you know, you know, from a market research perspective, looking at, you know, observing consumers using it more ethnographic types of research. So borrowing from the techniques used by anthropologists where, you know, you're observing people rather than asking them, right? I think also looking at trends, looking at, changes in attitude and behaviors over time, changes in norms of norms, I think is incredibly important. New rituals is another kind of interesting thing um, that you sort of see people kind of, you know, when you see people doing certain things, I think that's kind of another important piece of observation. Um, And then, you know, finally Mm -hmm. you get into just literally asking people, um, you know, uh, but people are very, are not necessarily very good at, uh, framing what they need. It's, it's sometimes very hard for them to act in the subconscious in that way. Right. And you just have to start to pull it out of them and, and make assumptions based off of what they're saying. This is what they actually need. Yeah. Well, you need to figure out what the assumptions are and you, mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, go and test those assumptions because you should never make the assumptions. Right. It's been like testing. Them. But like, you know, like, right. you know, like if you go to look at Eric Ries and the lean, lean product, uh, lean strategy, lean startup. Yep. 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 Like, you know, you that's, start, that's right where my mind went. That's right yeah, where my mind went. You start with two things. You start with the customer hypothesis and the customer problem hypothesis, right? Mm-hmm. Who is the person and what's the problem? And, and you kind of try and test the different hypotheses about what those are. And then, then you have a problem. And then you start looking for a solution and don't come up with a solution until then. You know, I remember I led a, uh, lean startup kind of methodology ideation session for some innovation work I was doing for a large retailer. And it was quite amazing the number of hypotheses that they were absolutely sure about that were actually incorrect. 
So mm. it's very telling to, and it's a very good idea to always test your hypotheses. Yeah. Yeah. So we've kind of talked our way into a conversation of the, the product life cycle, um, if you will, for marketing. So we, we talked through like doing your initial, your research on the customer, what they want, uh, what they might need, what the product should be. And then obviously you have to go through, if you're a CPG company, you're going to have to actually create the product. If you're a software company, you have to create the software, um, what have you. Now you get to a point where you need to figure out how to communicate this. And I think this is where you have spent the majority of your career. If, if, if I'm, if I'm not wrong, you've done a lot of communications and branding work. So at this stage in the process, what are you thinking through? Like you, you have the product, you know, or you, you have assumptions around what you think people want. Right. How do you communicate it? How do you, how do you build awareness around something um, without I, it having been known before? Well, I think that it's, it, you know, in, in the best Times, it's so in sync with the product itself, like the reason for the product, that you need mm -hmm. to, it just should come out of that. And that's where you yeah. need to, like, so there's a couple of different techniques, right? Ultimately, um, you know, you are in, at the point of storytelling, right? So mm -hmm. there's a number of couple of different ways that you can do it, right? So, but ultimately what you want, what you want to do and what you should have done when you're creating the product is identify an audience, that understand the unspoken unmet need that will appear to them, that, that is there for them and, or identify attention, which the product or brand can resolve. Okay. And the, key thing is is that um it is an emotional communication you are trying to elicit emotion right and you know we have our, our rational brain right and we have our emotional brain system one and system two right as as kahneman and svertsky and, and all those guys kind of talk about and the fact is that we know that the majority of our decision making is done with the emotional part of our brain Right, and the, the, the rational part exists to kind of put logic and reason behind it afterwards. So ultimately what you're trying to do when you're communicating, you're trying to create an emotional connection through identification, right? So this is a product for someone like me, right? Or through, oh yes, I need that. That's gonna solve a problem. So there's a kind of relief, right? You know, a classic kind of case of this is the is the iPod, right? Which is a very simple kind of, you know, in the most simplest statement of what they were trying to communicate was a thousand songs in your pocket, right? Yeah. Now, the way they communicated that, if you go back to the original iTunes campaign, was this just beautiful vision of figures dancing and being in love with, with music, right? That a point that you could be just enjoy that that music kind of personally and that endless variety of it. Now they did it in a really kind of cool way and they made the white earbuds, right, really iconic in the process of doing that. But, but that was the way they emotionally kind of connected that. If you think back to some of the best, you know, car advertising uh, that you can think about, and I always tend to go back to the, the Volkswagen work of the late, 90s that was done by Arnold. Um, it was trying to target, you know, younger kind of post-college folks and just 
it didn't, it wasn't focused on a product feature. It was focused on a sense of identifying who those people were and where they were in their life. So it, get, it worked in a very kind of different way, right? There's also a way of doing it where it's just about entertainment, particularly when you don't necessarily have a, um, a particularly meaningful message or it's a, the message hasn't changed. Geico is the classic example of that, right? Their message is incredibly simple. Yeah. 15 minutes could save you 15% of car insurance. And it hasn't changed, but they do it in a way where they're entertaining people, where it's fun. Bud Light, beer brands, you know, Super Bowl crush, they, they work in the same kind of way, right? And it's okay to just entertain people to be to be memorable, to create salience that so that you when you walk into the store, you can kind of do that. So there's not you know, coming back to your original question, there's not one way to do it. You have to understand who your audience yeah. is. You have to understand what's going to work onto them. In the best ways, you are merging an insight about the product, an insight about the brand, and an insight about culture to create a, string, a springboard for storytelling. And there is a need to rely on some, you know, this is where you work with creative people, art directors and copywriters, and where you need that kind of that creative spark to be able to tell that story in an amazing kind of way. Sometimes you also need, you know, it's, it's not just that, but you know, the, the more you can introduce iconic things into the product, YTA Buzz is example, right. introduce viral aspects into the product that help it spread, right? So Gmail was originally an invitation only product. So scarcity, really? yeah. Scarcity works very well as something where people start liking it. And it works very well. <laughs> Hagendas right? was exactly the same. Hagendas, when they went to market, they wanted to be a super premium brand. They had their own fridges in stores. And you couldn't, because they couldn't get those fridges in everywhere, you couldn't get Hagendas everywhere. So suddenly there was a scarcity aspect to the product. So that, could, that is, a, is a way you can make these techniques work as well. So this. Some of it is, you know, communication is, is a part of it, but then there's also the more you can build communication and aspects and things like this into the product and distribution, the stronger your marketing effort will be as well. Right. So how do you know if you're successful coming out of that? Because my understanding of, uh, there's another part of marketing where uh, what you're looking for is advertising arbitrages. Basically, you're looking for, spending the least amount of money to get access to the most amount of people. Um, so when social media became a thing, that was, it was huge because you could spend five cents uh, on Google or Facebook or Instagram and get access to however many people. And, and that drove lots, lots and lots of business growth for people. So how do you know if, if what you're doing is successful compared to perhaps another, another option or another route you could go down? Well, I think I think to take a step back, you have to think about your you know your objectives and then break them down into sub-objectives. So, I think for me, something that we've gone away from a lot is we've because there's been such a huge focus on sales growth, particularly with DTC brands, they've stopped actually building a brand. A brand is the collection of 
impressions, thoughts, emotions that we have that surround the product or the company, right? Now, we can, and, and you could probably think, right, like there are a number of products that, you know, like Tide, where you actually have a set of emotions and impressions around it. And there are some products, like this microphone maybe, but you don't because they've not bothered to build a brand. Over the longer term, and this is research has been shown this, the more you can build a brand, the more you can build an emotional connection to your consumer, the more you can actually get a better ROI on your marketing, right? The more you can have higher loyalty, the more you're actually building a financial gain for your company because that brand value is an intangible that sits in your balance sheet. It's the right to charge more, right? for your product because you are seen as a better brand. Even if, by the way, you're a less expensive brand, you can still be a better brand. Geico is a better brand, even though right. it's playing a price game in insurance. So then you, you can have brand goals and you can have sales goals, right? You can't get away from those, right? But you have to balance the spending between the two, right? What is mm -hmm. a brand foundation layer what is sales promotional like to buy to get people to buy now to pull the trigger all right what is what is the part of my spending that's going to provoke curiosity to get me to go investigate and what is the offer that i'm going to take to try it now okay and if you there's great research by two guys les Benet and peter fields based in the uk where they basically found that your proportion of brand to sales spending should be about 60 40. okay now 60 percent 60% brand, 40% sales, right? Performance okay. marketing. Interesting. Now, then you need to break down things and say, okay, well, well, against those two different kinds of communication, how do I measure success? For brand, am I measuring awareness? Am I measuring consideration? Am I measuring willingness to recommend, right? And you can look at what is the most effective media to reach my consumer that will achieve that. So what is the effectiveness of social media versus you know, paid social versus organic social versus YouTube, right? And I measure the effectiveness of each challenge in order to accomplish that. Versus say my sales goals, right? Where I am, for example, using retargeting pools or I'm using social media and I've got an acquisition goal. And then you are looking across channels to look at key metrics such as cost per acquisition, right? Cost, you know, conversion per channel, even cost per click. Although ultimately, right, you, you probably don't want to look at clicks. You want to look at conversion. You want to optimize the conversion, right. whatever that, that is. So you have to start with right. the macro and then break down into micro, right? Across each kind of channel. Right. As you mentioned, I think at some point, the work you're doing on your branding eventually has to become a part of your sale. Like at, at what point does the work you're doing on your branding, that 60% that you're theoretizing per year on your branding um, start to have ROI and be one of the main drivers of why you can either charge more or just be a more successful company than your competitor. Yeah, I think I think it kind of is a circular. I mean, there's there's no one answer to that question. It's it's mm. is it? So first of all, ultimately, all of your communication has to work in sync. So, yeah. what you're doing with your brand has to work on your your the sales front as well, right? 
whether it's a you know retargeting social you know using social display to retarget your consumer you showed a brand ad to to get them to to buy now right ultimately it's got to look and feel the same way the message emphasis is different right but ultimately the more you are able to build an impression right the more you generate a sense like there, there are very there are key measures when it's like a brand i would recommend to friends a brand that i see see around a lot and doing a lot the more that there's a sense of momentum behind you right and a sense of savings behind your brand that's when you start seeing things picking up like oh i see that around a lot i see a lot of people using it i should try it that's when you do that now you nothing kills a bad product faster than good advertising and marketing right so it also depends on the product experience right because that's just as much part of your brand and your ability to then deal with customers particularly if there's a service element deal with customer complaints deal with you know, deal, you know generate customer loyalty um although customer loyalty is a myth to be quite honest with you because for almost all products we buy a selection of products right and we're not particularly loyal to one of them we have four or five products in repertoire right um, so you just need to make sure you're getting your, your relative fair share and you're actually getting more people, to, people who haven't tried your product to try it. So the more you can do that, the more you can get that, that sentimentum, the more you can look after your customer and have a great product experience that you're going to see that ROI. I think that's why I love marketing so much. There's never an end to it. <laughs> no, they're, they're exactly right. You know, and I think actually, like you can never rest on your laurels because you always have to be you have to be interesting all the time you have to be something that yeah. someone sees you doing something that's relevant and interesting in you and gives you something to talk and think about right um mm -hmm. otherwise you just kind of fade into the background and you're lost yep. right? now mm -hmm. It can be consistent, right? Like Nike is very consistent with what they do, but they're still always kind yep. of reinventing things, right? Red Bull is very consistent in what they do, but they're always coming up with new ideas of what to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One thing that I did want to talk about, um, and I'd love to get your input on this, is ethics in marketing. Mm -hmm. um, so one, one thing that I typically think about is like the, the way that, things are being marketed, but then also the products that are being marketed. So I'd love your input on just ethics in general, and then we can dive a little deeper into certain areas if, if, we, if we want to. I mean, that's a very broad question because there's lots of different like areas that we could attack. Like, so there's the ethics yeah. of marketing certain products to certain audiences, right? right. So um, the ethics of payday loans, right, to poorer people, uh, the ethics of marketing, you know, alcohol, nicotine to young adults, uh, the ethics of data usage, right? I think that it comes down to um, individual and personal choices, right, and personal ethics. Yeah. And I think that if you are not, you have to really look at yourself at the end of the day. You have to say, is there a, you know, is this product, harming the audience is it not good for them am i being totally honest and transparent right or am yeah. i actually filling a need and the fact is like there are some industries that 
where it's definitely questionable, right? Should Jewel have been marketing? Now, you also have to balance that, by the way, with a fundamental belief in human intelligence and the right to self-determination. So, right. Well, the, yeah, the other thing is, the other thing is like how much responsibility falls in the company and how much re- responsibility ends up falling on the end consumer. Like, I think there's a big difference between a company, well, we can use Jewel as an example, saying this is perfectly healthy for you. This is going to be, this is going to be everything you need. It's just like having a sucker and them saying this is an alternative to smoking cigarettes. Um, It's used for people that are trying to quit cigarettes. Yeah. I think it's a big difference. There's a big difference. Right. And I think that like the the vaping industry was trying to say that vaping was safer than smoking. Right. Which is fundamentally. I I, I could get behind that. Yeah. I I would, I'd agree. I would agree. It's fundamentally missing for me, which is ethically incorrect, right? I also think there's a bigger moral question of if you are marketing a smoking product, firstly, should you be? Second of all, but if you are going to, you better make sure you're disclosing everything, right? Just like pharmaceutical companies have to disclose all of the side effects, right? And all of the trials and all of those things, right, that they're doing. So I think that, um, you know, when you try and position a product as, cool or tasty or flavorful without giving the full story that's kind of very dodgy as we say in in england right now we come on to data that's a whole other different question right because i fundamentally think that um there's a there's been a trade-off for years okay in terms of data usage people have always like supermarkets have always collected data about what people are buying Nielsen has always collected data, admittedly through surveys and panels, on what people are watching, right? There has been a quid pro quo about, I watch TV, right, on the uh, the networks, and I don't pay for it if I don't want to, right? Because I'm, and in in exchange, I'm sold advertising. And when the internet started, it was exactly the same thing. I don't pay for content, and in return, I watch advertising. And your data is going to be part of what's bought and sold. Now, maybe they need some better education among people to understand, but that's the fundamental trade-off. And if you want to give up that trade-off, that's fine. You know, use services where there is a paywall and where you don't get served advertising, right? Like the New York Times or the Washington Post or Business Insider. And that's the model that a lot of companies have gone to, in part because there's, there's too much advertising, there's too much um, ad space available, so you can't charge for it. That's totally fine. But I, I, I think that it's something that we that we've always done, um, and we've just gotten a little better at it, right? We've gotten better at yeah. piecing together different bits of beta and then serving you ads based on what you've kind of done. Yeah, so, and we're I think we're also just able to collect more of it way faster too. Exactly. So it's it's not different. It's just more precise than what we've already done now. That doesn't mean that that system can't be abused, right? The way that it's being abused from an election manipulation perspective. And that's definitely troubling. That doesn't mean that it can't be abused from the point of view of like, say your phone or Google Home or Alexa listening to conversations they should not be listening to, right? And I think some of the things they've done in Europe in terms of warning about cookies, right? Promotes consumer awareness of this. So. 
Yeah. Or, or giving consumers the option to opt out of having their data being collected is, is, a, is a good thing. But recognize there's a trade-off. If you don't want your data to be collected, then maybe you need to be expected to pay for the service. Yeah, I'm, I'm personally, I love my data being collected because it makes my life just that much easier. So one, for one example, I use Google Chrome and um, literally all of the files, I, I also use Google Drive. So all of the files that I ever use, if I type in one keyword, it pulls up. Like I, I just, I, I put that in the search or the, the browser bar or whatever you want to call it. And it pulls it up because it knows that's where I've been in the past. So that's yeah. one example, like data, them using my data is super helpful for me. And the other thing that I'm, I don't purchase a lot of things, but um, when I see advertisements that are aligned with like what, what I want to buy, that's kind of helpful. Right. You know, if I want to, if I'm going to buy a fishing pole anyways, if they're going to make a recommendation of, of a fishing pole to buy based off of X, Y, and Z, that's my dog, by the way. I don't know if you saw I that. saw her. I, I was like, you don't <laughs> Yeah, she's, it's her birthday today, actually. She turned two Aww. years old. She's, yeah. How old is she? She's, she's two. She's a, a little meatball, but she's an English. Oh, she wants to talk on the microphone. She's an English red lab. Um, Super sweet. I'll be with you in just a second, okay? <laughs> she's, she's my co-pilot every day. I'm That's up in the cabin right now. It's just, it's just me and her, and she's pushing me really hard to go outside. Five more minutes, Rosie. Okay. Um, but yeah, I, I enjoy my data getting collected, but I'm also like fully aware of, of the things that it gets used for. I'm sure people are paying a lot of money to use the data or at least leverage that data to market to me. Um, one thing that might be interesting, that might be interesting, I don't know if you can pull this off, but, um, if you stayed with the same model that, that Google uses, uh, where there's no paywall, Instagram, all the social media platforms, there's no paywall. Is there a way for the user to get a cut of the money that is spent on them to advertise to them? Well, that's, that's a product idea I've had for some time, actually, that I, I keep needing to work on, but I, I, I think that's a really interesting thing to think about. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how it would work, but it's kind of an interesting theory to see if it would work. Yeah. Um, well, geez, my dog's getting all over me here now, Mike. I should, I should probably, I got one more question for you, then I got to yeah. bring her outside and go all around a little bit. No um, it's, I'm going to ask, ask it to everybody at the end of the, the show. Um, what is one marketing strategy, platform, or idea that is either unknown or underutilized that's highly effective? Wow, that's a tough question. Um, <laughs> I, I think that, um, I think, I mean, I don't think there's a platform or a strategy that's necessarily unknown or underutilized, but I do think that um, we don't, a lot of companies aren't, I think, spending enough time kind of doing marketing strategy in the right way of putting the consumer at the center still, right? You know, they're leading with the product or they're, they're leading with technology and they're not leading, you know, enough with, with the user potentially that I think, um, you know, can, can happen. And I think that I, I see, I, even though it's very basic, I still see it kind of way too often. I think in terms of like, um, interesting, some strategies, I, I, you know, I think people have gone away from it a little bit, but like, I love 
like guerrilla guerrilla marketing strategies, whether it's stickers or whether Me it's like wild yes. posting. Yes. I, you know, I worked at Kirschenbaum Bond and Partners with John Bond and Richard Kirschenbaum, who were like the OGs of guerrilla marketing. And the stuff <laughs> they did was like like putting stickers on mangoes when they launched Mango Snapple, things like that were just genius. And there, there was some great, great thinkers in that, you know, in that world. So I just think it's very, you know, where, where, where the medium is, the media is the message. That's just an always just interesting strategy to do. Uh, it's, it's not easy, but I think that the more that we're online, stuff that's in the real world, I think becomes more impactful. And, and I'll actually, this makes me think of something I'm going, to, I'm going to carry it with myself. I think that literally direct mail packages to people's houses is actually a very effective thing because no one gets mail anymore. Yes. Like yes. Nobody gets, it's thinking the same thing. I get probably a hundred plus emails a day, you know, and I'm right. sure you do too. You probably, I mean, you probably get even way more than that, but when I was thinking about it, how many pieces of mail do I get? And, and this, I, people may have gotten way more in the past, but I probably like I'm I'm only 20, so I probably get one piece of mail every few days, um, and my family gets a few pieces every day. But if you get a package, that's a big deal. Like that that doesn't happen often. Yeah, exactly. So like if you send a package to a business person's desk, and particularly if you send it by FedEx, right? Yeah. Or UPS, so there's someone signs for it. It's gonna get on their desk. Yeah. You know, it's gonna cause them to open something. So I think that that sort of Three things that are in real life, things that are 3D dimensional, I see. I, I definitely see that as important. Well, 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 I'm right there with you, Mark. Those are three very good points that you made right there. Um, I'm going to take Rosie outside, go celebrate her birthday a little bit. Go celebrate her <laughs> birthday, stay, Hi, Rosie. <laughs> <laughs> so All right, Mark. Thank, thanks for coming on. I, I appreciate you, you joining you, me. Let me know when you put this out, okay? And send me a link to it. I will. Awesome. I will. Alrighty. Take care. Hey, this is Jake. Uh, Thank you for listening to today's episode of Finding Your Niche. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, I hope you have a great rest of your week and I'll see you next time. Well, I won't actually see you, but you get the point. Have a great week.